previously in impeachment. So how many people testified this week? Can you even remember, Jim? Um, it was it was somewhere between um, four and 700. I think it was <laughs> nine, though. <laughs> nine witnesses, three days, and each and every one of these people, they were saying the same thing. To really understand this impeachment story, you've got to talk to my boss. Including Sondland, right? I mean, the one thing, the gift that Sondland did give was, you should probably talk to Pompeo. Which is why this week... Everyone was watching a United States district court in Washington, D.C. Welcome back. It is another week in impeachment. And I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, you told me last week was the last week of this. And it was. But then you know how this goes. Like, you make plans and then yada, yada, yada. A court is ruling something. And anyway, here we are. Plus, Jeremy Stahl is in town. He is our senior legal editor here at Slate. Jeremy Stahl, hello. Hi, Mary. Welcome to New York. Thank you so much. So when we left off on Friday, the big question was, would there be any way to get these firsthand witnesses to whatever happened with Ukraine to get them to testify in front of Congress. Because each of the witnesses last week really seemed to me, and you can disagree with me here if you disagree, but it seemed to me like each of those witnesses was taking their little piece of knowledge and laying it at the feet of their boss, (laughs) essentially, and saying, I was doing this work, but who you really need to talk to is, you know, Mick Mulvaney, Mike Pompeo, any of these people who work inside the White House and are having regular meetings with the president. Last week, there was a ton of buck passing from the uh, Republican committee members in that uh, impeachment inquiry room, challenges that it was all hearsay evidence, that it was all hearsay testimony, and that no direct witnesses had come forward to speak directly to what what it was that President Trump was seeking from Ukraine. Well, that's certainly what the Republicans wanted us to think. You know, we had <laughs> Jim Newell came in here and he said one member was quoting REO Speedwagon to him. Like, I heard it from a friend who heard it from a friend who heard it from a friend who, you know, a lot of them were talking about what they had heard from other people. Yeah. Fiona Hill, who uh, was the top Russia expert on the National Security Council and worked directly under John Bolton, laid out how, you know, her boss had instructed her to speak to National Security Council lawyers and had said that what Gordon Sondland was proposing sounded to him like a metaphorical drug deal and all these things that we've known about for weeks. But but that was very powerful to hear come directly from this very, very thoughtful, deliberate smart witness in that hearing room on Friday. But all that to say, she was still referring to what John Bolton was saying and what John Bolton knew rather than her direct experience with President Donald Trump. And that continues to be what uh, Republicans on that committee and Republican senators, it looks like, are going to hang their hats on. But this week, there was a ruling in federal court that could mean these firsthand witnesses have to testify. It all hinges on something called absolute immunity. The White House argues the president has it. Congress argues he most certainly does not. Back when the Mueller report came out, the president used this immunity argument to keep his top aides out of Congress. And Congress sued. This week, a judge said top officials have to comply with congressional subpoenas. 
even former White House lawyer Don McGahn, who gave some of the most colorful testimony in Robert Mueller's report. This judge says her decision, it applies to all kinds of aides and national security staff, including those Congress is trying to talk to about Ukraine, John Bolton, Mick Mulvaney, Mike Pompeo. And if upheld on appeal, the way that this ruling was presented, it would apply to all of them as well. But for someone like you reading this, you cover law and justice for Slate. Yes. You read opinions like this all the time. Yes. She seemed to bring the fire, right? You know, I read much of this 120-page opinion from Katanji Brown-Jackson last night, and it was a very thorough one that that made very explicit and precise points that the DOJ's argument to cut straight to it would essentially make the president a king and essentially put him above the law. She even has a line in there that was something along the lines of the primary lesson of the past 250 years of American history was that presidents are not kings. And she cited Alexis de Tocqueville. She cited Madison. She cited the Federalist Papers and Alexander Hamilton. And all of this was to put to bed this idea that presidential advisors such as Don McGahn or former presidential advisors such as Don McGahn, such as John Bolton, uh, current ones such as Mick Mulvaney, had absolute immunity to not comply with congressional subpoenas, to not appear before oversight investigations and impeachment investigations, and to block all access to information about what the president may or may not have done and how he may or may not have abused his powers. Hmm. Can we talk about what the argument of the administration is here? I mean, you've sort of referred to the idea of this unchecked executive power. Why did the White House think that they could ignore subpoenas from Congress in the first place? So on this question of absolute immunity, is something that actually has come from multiple administrations of both parties, as they are quick to point out. George W. Bush was the first case where this was actually tested, where he tried to block his former um, legal counsel, Harriet Mears, from testifying before Congress. And the judge in that case, similar to this one, in a case that was cited heavily in Judge Jackson's ruling, upheld the notion that there is no such thing as absolute immunity as the White House has cited in these OLC opinions for years and years and years. The thing just OLC o- Office of Legal Counsel from the Department of Justice. Office right? of Legal Counsel, Department of Justice, for for going back decades, has has sort of raised this notion that presidential advisors. Uh, People close to the president are an extension of him and his authority and executive authority and thus are completely immune from appearing before Congress. They don't even have to show up. And again, Judge Bates in this 2008 ruling that is not binding precedent because it was never appealed, ruled that this doesn't exist. It's not a real thing. Finally here, it has gotten to the point where in an impeachment inquiry, an inquiry whether or not the president obstructed justice— The White House has tried to prevent testimony of a top advisor who would directly testify to those allegations. And the judge said, no, you can't do that. The judge said this claim of absolute immunity was fiction. Yes. The judge said it was it was an OLC construct, essentially, and that there's no basis for it in precedent, in law, in any sort of our founding principle. She also really heavily went to the to citing our founders and the notion of the separate the fundamental separation of powers and the notion of the fundamental checks and balances that are supposed to constitute our democracy. It's all big stuff. Big <laughs> 
big, <laughs> heavy stuff that like, you know, it matters though. It should matter. And the, the, the reason that it might have a practical effect is that if a ruling such as this is upheld first by the D.C. Circuit and then by the Supreme Court on a fast track, which who knows, then that potentially could have implications for other witnesses that have been holding out, such as John Bolton, such as White House Chief of Staff McVolaney, although they've already indicated that they don't think this ruling means anything. Yeah, they've already said basically this doesn't apply to us, but that's not what's in the ruling, is it? No, the ruling is very explicit throughout that it is all White House aides, current and former. And it goes to pains to mention that that was even the case on questions when the aid specifically was focused on national security and foreign affairs, which is the the case that Bolton makes, is that he's separate from Don McGahn, who's just a lawyer doing legal things, even though he was obviously steeply involved in the national security issues, but that Bolton's sole focus was national security, and therefore he had super-duper executive privilege. And Judge (laughs) Judge Jackson just kind of completely negates that in multiple portions of her of her ruling, you know, whether or not you were working on national security, whether or not you're working on foreign affairs, if you were an advisor, you can not just disobey a congressional subpoena. Now, Judge Jackson's Jackson's opinion is not binding yet. It has to be appealed. It has to uh, be heard before the D.C. Circuit and then potentially the Supreme Court. But clearly, a, a ruling such as this, if upheld, would have really profound implications and important implications basically upholding the essential norms and principles and system of our rule of law that we've slowly seen erode for the past three years. So this decision was appealed basically immediately. What happens now? So a panel of the D.C. Circuit, which has, in terms of the number of Democratic appointees versus Republican appointees, it has a higher number of Democratic appointees, A three-member panel, I believe, should hear this case. I haven't seen who that panel will be yet. What could happen is it could depend on who who is on that panel and how how quickly they decide they need to move on this. There will be a request to have it fast-tracked. I believe that um, Chief Judge Merrick Garland Garland will make that decision. Merrick Garland? Yeah, right? Return of Merrick Garland. Return return of the Merrick. Um, (laughs) I, I assume he will want to fast track this because it's, it feels like an urgent matter, doesn't it? It feels urgent. <laughs> it feels right? urgent to me. Yeah, there's an impeachment going on. There's lots of stuff happening right now. They want to do it quick. To do. Yeah, we need to get this the show on the road. Lickety split, please. <laughs> what happened the last time we were in this situation, like with Watergate? Uh, they had sim- they had similar you know situations where there there was a need for the judges to rule urgently. There was obviously the the Watergate tapes case, and that that unfolded fairly quickly as well. In a unanimous decision written by Chief Justice Warren Burger, the court rejected eight to nothing, Mr. Nixon's claim of absolute privilege on those tapes. And, the and stand- you know when the courts need to act fast or feel motivated to do so, they they have historically been able to do so. And I guess the question is whether or not um, John, John Roberts feels that motivation at the moment. Back with more impeachment after the break. This episode is brought to you by Discover. 
When it comes to your finances, Discover wants you to know they are the credit card that is always there for you. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, that means no more waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. We are talking real service from real people whenever you need it. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Since our last show, there has also been this steady drip of files coming from the State Department. They seem to support the testimony we saw last week. A group called American Oversight released nearly 100 pages of documents they received from a FOIA, a Freedom of Information Act request. You know, on Tuesday, Mike Pompeo, Secretary of Mike, State Mike Pompeo, held a press conference, and he was asked directly about one of these documents. Last Friday, the department released call, telephone call logs and some correspondence that show that you had two brief conversations with Rudy Giuliani in late March. This has led to Pompeo addressed a question that uh, about a document that showed that he had been speaking with the president's attorney Rudy Giuliani since March. At the same time that Giuliani was putting forward this, you know, what um, the, the ambassador to Ukraine called a smear campaign against her to remove her from office, which uh, remove her from her post, which eventually she was forced out of that post. Yeah, this is Marie Ivanovich who testified in front of Congress. Did you discuss Ambassador Yovanovitch in those calls with Mayor Giuliani? And did the State Department then mislead or misinform Congress as to the circumstances of her departure in the two letters that were sent to Steny Hoyer and, and, and Elliot Engel? Thank you. Uh, I don't have much to say with respect to uh, the Ukraine investigation. And it's interesting because you can really see how even in the spring, there was a lot of controversy over what was happening with her. You have Democratic lawmakers writing to the State Department saying we're concerned with what's going on here. And then you have records that Rudy Giuliani is trying to reach out to Mike Pompeo directly and is going to the White House and saying, hey, get me in the front door here to talk about what he's finding in Ukraine. So the idea that you didn't know what was happening, that really doesn't stand up. He he did know what was going on, and this is hard evidence of him knowing what was going on. So this week, it feels like the Democrats are going to be busy writing up their report that they're going to send to us and the Judiciary Committee to try to move forward with impeachment. We just got news that the Judiciary Committee is going to open up their own hearings basically as soon as we get back from Thanksgiving. But I guess my question is, given all of this evidence, given this new court ruling, should we be having more public hearings first? Well, I feel like the narrative out of the end of last week was that the momentum had stalled for impeachment. The polls were kind of going the wrong way and that a week and a half, two weeks of public testimony had had the opposite effect of what they had needed to have. On Tuesday and Monday, there have been a few polls released that show quite the opposite, show impeachment has uh, support for impeachment and removal has ticked right back up to 50 percent, 50 to 45 in one poll I saw, 50 to 42 in another, the Politico morning consult poll. And that having witnesses testify all day, every other day about the president's wrongdoing doesn't seem to be too good for the president, ultimately. <laughs> Well, I think it is a little bit of a jump ball what it would sound like to have a Rudy Giuliani or 
Mike Pompeo in front of Congress because they seem like wild cards. It seems pretty predictable and calm and rational, the conversations you're having with these career State Department people. But I don't know what it would look like to have these more political figures in the same position. So the one thing that Judge Jackson sort of um, acceded to in her ruling was this notion that while absolute immunity was essentially nonsense, the idea of executive privilege still stands. And the idea that on a case-by-case basis, a witness testifying before Congress can say, this is privileged information that the White House has instructed me not to share, still stands. And then it would be up again to the court system to determine what would happen there. But yeah, you could see a scenario where Mike Pompeo, if he was ever actually compelled to testify or decided to testify, would just be like, you know, this is these are private conversations between um, uh, me and the president, and I, I cannot share them. But again, of course, that miscomprehends the the actual reality of the fact that he has had the opportunity to turn over hundreds of pages of documents that are not his direct conversations with the president that would presumably not be protected by executive privilege, and he has chosen to hold those. Well, and maybe having someone in front of Congress repeatedly saying, I can't tell you that, I can't tell you that, I can't tell you that, the optics of that may not be there great either. No, especially if it's it's, uh, the Secretary of State, Mike Pompeo, who who seemingly now wants to run for uh, Senate in Kansas. He's he's repeatedly denied that what that's what he's doing, but he also in his, his presser on Tuesday announced that he was going to Louisville to the Mitch McConnell Center to hold some kind of event in the in the weeks ahead. And one one can't help but uh, connect that dot that that might have something to do with the future Senate campaign. Hmm. There does seem to be this third way forward where people are refusing to testify now. Adam Schiff kind of alluded to this this weekend on some of the Sunday shows. But the idea he was getting at was that the courts are slow. These appeals are going to take a long time. But once we move this forward, this case forward into the Senate, we have Chief Justice John Roberts, who's theoretically overseeing this and can, you know, call balls and strikes if we want him to. And so maybe Chief Justice John Roberts, if he's not going to rule in court, maybe as the person proceeding over the Senate trial would weigh in and say, we need to see Mick Mulvaney in here. We need to see John Bolton in here. We need to see Mike Pompeo in here. So it's supposed to work like a trial where both sides can call their witnesses. The president can call his witnesses um, and the House impeachment managers can call their witnesses. And then John Roberts is the presiding officer. And he in accordance with the rules, has the authority to decide those evidentiary questions unless he's overruled by a Senate majority. So there are, you know, situations and scenarios in which the Senate moves the rules around a little bit, switches things up, makes him more of a figurehead and gives him more figurehead status, and he gladly accepts that. But according to where things stand right now, that's not how it should go. I'm not saying that they can't make that happen. They could certainly move things around to make try to make that happen and that might be the ultimate direction we're headed but that Where Mitch w- McConnell is is sort of clipping the wings of a John Roberts. Yes. I, I, all I'm saying is that that shouldn't happen without a fight. Huh. Yeah, Dolly was really doubtful of this idea. <laughs> when I spoke to her last week, she was like, "You know what? This is all just going to be Mitch McConnell writing the rules and so just don't don't get too hopeful here." That that is certainly a, a possibility, and all I'm saying is that 
if Chuck Schumer and Senate Democrats are going to be smart about this at all, they're not going to let that happen without one heck of a fight. John Roberts is going to end the court itself is going to have to determine whether or not they want to uh, place their legitimacy on essentially holding water for Donald Trump. And I guess we're about to find out which way that's going to go. Jeremy Stahl, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much, Mary. Happy Thanksgiving. You too. Jeremy Stahl is a senior legal editor here at Slate. All right, that's the show. We are going to take a couple of days off for Thanksgiving. I hope you get to do that, too. Today and every day, I am grateful for the amazing producers here at What Next, Jason DeLeon, Mary Wilson, Mara Silvers, and Daniel Hewitt. I am Mary Harris. I will catch you back here on Monday. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.